Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. My guest this week is Chris Gebhardt, Assistant Managing Editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Today, Chris and I are going to talk about SpaceX, specifically the upcoming maiden flight of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket. The launch is scheduled for Tuesday, and this podcast was recorded Sunday afternoon. The launch window opens up at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and extends to 4.30 p.m. Currently, the weather is favorable, with an 80% probability of good launch conditions. Our listeners can watch the SpaceX webcast on SpaceRef and SpaceQ. Welcome, Chris, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. All right. Let's start with the Falcon Heavy launch and put this launch into context of rocketry history. If I'm right... Not since May 14th, 1973, almost 45 years ago, when the last Saturn V flew with the Skylab space mission, has a rocket this powerful attempted to launch. Chris, would it be fair to say that this launch has been much anticipated by the space community? Oh, yes. Um, Since Elon Musk very first announced this rocket um, and in its original configuration before the Falcon 9, which is really three Falcon 9s put together at the bay uh, for the first um, stage flight of this rocket is a good way to think about that. It's technically much more complicated than that, but it's basically three Falcon 9 cores mated together. Um, The Falcon Heavy originally was going to be um, based on the Falcon 1 version, which first flew in 2010, but SpaceX has updated and upgraded its Falcon 9 since then. So it is much more powerful than was even first um, presented to the public back in 2011. And the fact that we are here now, um, after um, a few years down the line from when Elon Musk first said this rocket would fly, um, by his own admission, it was much more complicated than, than was first envisioned once they got into the nitty gritty and the nuts and bolts of it. But um, it, its launch, not just for its sheer power uh, and ability is is one of the reasons why this is so um, anticipated, I would say, by the space community, because it, it represents the most powerful rocket to fly by thrust since the retirement of the space shuttle program in 2011, and the most powerful and capable rocket uh, to fly and, and be active since the end of the Apollo era with the Saturn V. So for for some perspective here, Right. Um, Because I know people listening to this podcast are saying, and rightfully so, that we have other heavy lift launch vehicles that are currently in operation like the Delta IV heavy from United Launch Alliance. But let's put this into into context of payload. So the Falcon Heavy rocket is capable of lifting 140,600 pounds or 63,800 kilograms into low Earth orbit. The Saturn V vehicle was capable of placing 310,000 pounds into low Earth orbit. So in the introduction, when you said this was the most powerful vehicle since the Saturn, in terms of payload capability to orbit, that is correct. Um, But it is worth noting that from a sheer power standpoint, the space shuttle was was more powerful than the Falcon Heavy will be. Uh, Falcon Heavy will produce roughly 5.1 million pounds of thrust at liftoff, and the shuttle produced just under 7 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. Um, but in terms of deployable payload, shuttle was only able to deploy about 53,000 pounds of payload into low Earth orbit, which is not a small payload. That, that's a massive amount of of cargo, but um, that, that included the uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. It did. It included Hubble, um, all of the U.S. and some of the Russian segments for the International Space Station as well, and even one of the uh, segments on the Mir Space Station for Russia back in the 90s. 
Um, but one of the things with shuttle that I think is also important to um, understand in terms of its total payload to orbit mass was 53,000 pounds was the amount that the shuttle could deploy from its cargo bay. But the entire orbiter was also, in a sense, a payload because it was inserted into Earth orbit. So shuttle could put up about 250,000 pounds um, if you included the orbiter in that, but only 50,000 pounds of that was roughly um, what was deployable. So this is a huge deal uh, for us because the closest competitor to Falcon Heavy that is currently on the U.S. side of the market is the Delta IV Heavy. And the Delta IV can place about 31,000 pounds into geosynchronous transfer orbit, where the Falcon Heavy can place 58,860 pounds into that same GTO orbit. So Falcon Heavy is an immensely more powerful rocket than, than what we currently have right now. And that's a real reason why this is a much anticipated mission. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the details. Mm -hmm. some, some of our audience are, are definitely going to have all the data at their fingertips, but I'm yes. going to guess that, that most don't know too much about the Falcon Heavy. So uh, can you describe to us a little bit about the Falcon Heavy and how it compares with the Falcon 9? And, you know, our audience is obviously quite... Uh, aware that you know the Falcon 9 is two-stage rocket, but the Falcon Heavy is just a little bit different configuration. So, give us a little bit of details on that. Yeah. So, so the obvious difference between the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy is that instead of just a single core representing the first stage, which is the Falcon 9, um, which has nine engines at its base, hence the nine in its name, the Falcon Heavy has three. Falcon 9 first stages mated together for a total number of engines of 27. So that visually is the biggest difference between the two vehicles. But there are some um, much more unique differences and um and, and differences in the amount of payload that can be launched to orbit, which is really where um, Falcon Heavy comes into play. So um, let's go ahead and just start with uh, the actual base of, of the rocket and, and the first stage. So at liftoff, uh, the Falcon 9 rocket, uh, which we just saw launch last week with the GovSat-1 satellite for the government of Luxembourg, produces 1.7 million pounds of thrust. That compares to the Falcon Heavy, which at liftoff produces 5.1 million pounds of thrust. So significantly more liftoff thrust and ability between the two vehicles. Uh, I mentioned before that the Falcon 9 has nine engines versus the 27 engines on the uh, Falcon Heavy. But also um, in terms of the overall capability of the rockets, so... I mentioned the thrust that both rockets um, have at liftoff, but as rockets ascend through first stage, the actual thrust level that the engines are producing increases as the vehicle climbs from Earth's atmosphere out into the vacuum of space. So at peak performance, the current version of the Falcon 9 produces 1.8 million pounds of thrust in a vacuum. The Falcon Heavy will produce 5.5 million pounds of thrust. Now, all of that is the technical numbers, right? And, and, you know, those are certainly impressive numbers. But what that actually translates to in terms of the total amount of payload that they can take to orbit is quite impressive. So the Falcon 9 can take to low Earth orbit 50,000 pounds of payload. The Falcon Heavy can take 140,600 pounds of payload to low Earth orbit. So almost three times the amount that Falcon 9 can do. Uh, in terms of the really heavy payloads to geostationary transfer orbit, which is um, the orbit that we just saw the Falcon 9 launch into last week with GovSat, uh, the regular Falcon 9 can take about 18,000 pounds to GTO orbit versus the 58,000 pounds that Falcon Heavy can take. Now, um, I know a lot of people are probably saying, like, that's great. It can take a lot of stuff to low Earth orbit. But um, what about Mars? What about that red planet? What about all of that colonization efforts that SpaceX has planned? So for comparison between the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy, uh, Falcon 9 would be capable of taking roughly 8,800 pounds to Mars. The Falcon Heavy 
is capable of taking 37,000 pounds of payload to Mars. So to help put that into a little bit of context, when the Mars Curiosity rover was launched um, earlier this decade by an Atlas V rocket, its total launch weight with all of the equipment it needed for the journey and the entry into Mars's atmosphere and to get to the surface, it weighed in total 8,500 pounds. So that would be capable of being launched on uh, the current version of the Falcon 9, but a a significantly more massive payload would be capable of being launched to Mars by the Falcon Heavy. Okay, so let's talk about the first stage of the Falcon Heavy for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, and, and, and not the, so uh, we have the center core and then we have two side cores or boosters. Now, mm-hmm. how does the center core compare to the Falcon 9 uh, first stage? Is it the same height, same configuration? It, it is the same height and the same overall configuration, but they did have to modify the center core slightly um, in terms of beefing up some of its structure that will handle the uh, the thrust loads from the two side boosters. Um, and as they went through the development process, what they learned is that they needed to, to beef up and increase certain areas of the center core for Falcon Heavy to, to ensure that the safety margins they wanted were maintained during flight. But... Other than that, it is essentially a Falcon 9 core, just with certain areas beefed up for for added protection. And what about the side boosters? Are they basically essentially the same, or have they been uh, redesigned uh, specifically for their purpose? So they are also essentially the same. The only major changes to the side boosters, both of which are flight-proven and have flown before, uh, one flew on the TICOM 8 mission back in 2016, and one flew on the CRS-9 mission of Dragon to the International Space Station also in 2016. So these are two flight-proven boosters that launched regular Falcon 9 missions. The only main difference is the addition of the attachment points where the side cores will bolt to the center core um, and some added, um, some added equipment uh, that that was that they determined was needed for those attach points. Um, the other major difference that we will see between the uh, for the side cores is that they do not have interstages attached on top of them. They just have rounded nose cones for aerodynamic control during first stage flight. And the other main visual difference is that the two side boosters are flying with the new titanium grid fins, the new beefed-up fins, which have only flown once before uh, on the Iridium-2 mission last year out of Vandenberg. And those increased um, titanium fins are larger than the regular fins. Uh, The regular fins will fly on the center core for Falcon Heavy. But the reason they put the new titanium fins on the two side cores was for more aerodynamic control because they don't have that interstage on top of them. So SpaceX wanted to make sure that the two side boosters had more than enough aerodynamic control ability during their entry sequences and landings uh, because they don't have the interstage. Okay. So this brings up my next uh, interesting point is SpaceX is going to try and recover the two side boosters and the center core. Now, this sounds like a very challenging task. Can you tell us how they're going to manage all three landing attempts? Where will they land? And what are the odds of succeeding in landing all three safely? Yes. So, um, the, the answer to your first question of how they are going to do this is that the cores actually fly themselves. So they are autonomous. They are not controlled by the ground, as cool as that would be to imagine someone with a joystick uh, controlling them. Uh, <laughs> their flight sequences are actually completely automated um, and is done by their onboard navigation systems and their communications link with the ground for the two side boosters and with the um, autonomous spaceport drone ship named Of Course I Still Love You in the Atlantic. There are two options that are currently available for SpaceX in terms of the two side boosters coming back to land. So the two side boosters will do what's called a return to launch site landing at Cape Canaveral. One will go to landing zone one, which is the landing pad that we've seen been used multiple times already. And the other one will go to the newly 
newly built LZ-2, which is actually only 500 feet away from LZ-1's landing pad. Now, there, the two options for the side core boosters are um, – one, the video that we've all seen um, pr probably a lot now um, showing simultaneous or near simultaneous landings, that's one option. So under that option, the two boosters would separate from the side core of Falcon Heavy and all of their boost back burns, their entry burns, and their landing burns would be more or less at exactly the same moment to each other. And they'd be flying in very close formation doing... Um, uh, doing what Elon Musk calls synchronized aerobatics. So um, you'd really have a, a tremendous show if that's the option that they go with. And those boosters would touch down at almost the same time, maybe a second or two difference um, given wind uh, and various configurations and performance of the two boosters. Uh, that might differ slightly, but the landings would be more or less synchronous with each other. Uh, the other option that we understand is is on the table and that they could choose to do would be a a staggering of the two boosters main events after they separate. So under this scenario, the two boosters would separate from the side core at the exact same moment, just like the shuttle solid rockets separated at the exact same time. But under this scenario, one booster would begin its boost back burn first, and the other would sort of loiter for several seconds, about 15 seconds from what we understand, and then begin its boost back burn. And that would separate the two boosters both in spacing and in timing, and this would provide some uh, added clearance and safety margin between the two boosters as they come back. Uh, right now, when we're recording this, it's not entirely certain which option will be chosen, um, but it could be one, one of the two. I, and I think a lot of us are, uh, are rooting for the uh, synchronized landing uh, attempt for those boosters. The center core's landing on a drone ship will be much like we have seen um, from the previous Falcon 9 missions that have landed on the drone ships. Uh, the booster will continue on in an arc from where it separates from the second stage, uh, perform its various burns, and touch down on the ASDS. Uh, of course, I still love you. Now, to your question about what are the odds of all three landings being successful, um, I would say that the odds of all three being successful are the same as the odds of a single landing being successful. Um, just because there are three happening at the same time or roughly the same time, again, because they're all autonomous, um, uh, they're, they're executing the same program scripts that we've seen the boosters of the past execute, whether it was a barge landing or a land landing back at the Cape. So, um, and SpaceX has been systematically with every single landing, reviewing the data, reviewing the performance, making improvements, um, you know, and, and recently, right, we've, we've seen these boosters landing very near the center of the barge or the center X on the landing pads. So, um, I, I would say that, yes, while three of them are happening together, the chance of all three being successful is, is, just as, is just as high as the single landings we've seen in the past. So a couple more questions related to that. Um, yes. Last week with the GovSat-1 satellite, uh, mm -hmm. they didn't try to recover the first stage. Instead, they, they tested a very high retrothrust landing, and mm -hmm. they didn't want to damage the drone ship, so they landed in the water. But even to Elon's amazement, uh, <laughs> it survived. Um, to everyone's amazement, it survived, yes. Yes, it survived. And so um, I think they said they were going to try and tow it in, and did they actually succeed in that? And then... Here's the more important question out of the two, I suppose, is um, how important was the data that they received from that with respect to the uh, Falcon Heavy launch and the landing of these three uh, cores? Gotcha. Excellent question. So, yeah, so Elon's tweet um, where he revealed the photo of the booster floating in the water um, did say that they were going to attempt to tow it back. Um uh, that's about all we know. Um, what I can say is that the same recovery ships that were w at the location where the booster did successfully soft land last week are the same recovery ships that have to be with the ASDS for recovery of the Falcon Heavy's center core. 
Um, the booster or the, or the barge rather left Port Canaveral yesterday uh, to go out to catch the center core. One of the recovery ships was with it. Um, so I'm not entirely sure where they stand on that process. Um, there, there was a lot of talk, um, and speculation afterward that, you know, the rocket as pictured in the water was still pressurized and in order to get it safe for people to even approach, to begin to assess whether it could be towed or not, um, you would have to depressurize it and depressurizing it would likely cause it to sink, um, and take on water or that water would eventually leak in through, through the engine nozzles. Um, so I, I don't actually know, uh, what the current status of that booster is. I, I do know it has not been towed back to Port Canaveral yet. It, it, it is not in Port Canaveral. Um, but I think a lot of the attention has shifted to, to the recovery of the Falcon heavy center core. And, and another thing with the tow back that that's interesting and, and would certainly not be a, a stop to them towing it back if they wanted to and could do it safely is that no one expected it to survive. So it's not like the recovery vessels were there with towing equipment in hand to bring it back. No one expected it to survive. They were really there to document its uh, landing, its destruction, and then recover any pieces that survived the breakup when it tipped over. So uh, that's a very important thing to, to remember for, for that. Um, uh, in terms of what, what it was testing and in your question to how it relates to Falcon Heavy, so this is actually the second time in about the span of a month that SpaceX has tested a soft water landing of a booster. They did the same thing without landing legs on the booster that launched the Iridium-4 mission in December, the, the one that freaked everyone in Los Angeles out because they thought it was a UFO um, when it was launching. Um, so Good publicity. That, that, Good publicity, yes. I believe Elon called it a nuclear alien UFO from North Korea or something like that um, <laughs> because Elon has a great sense of humor that he doesn't mind sharing with us all. Um, but but specifically to what they were testing, right, you know, uh, a, a lot of people, and I think rightfully so, were, were a bit confused by the GovSat expenditure because it had landing legs and they were treating it as a landing. And what I was telling folks was that, yes, they're expending the booster. The weight of the satellite allowed them to put landing legs on it, unlike some of the other expendable missions we saw last year, which needed every bit of weight savings possible to fly in their expendable configurations to get their satellites up. So this really gave SpaceX the ability, as you said earlier, to test this three-engine hover slam, um, which is basically seeing how little fuel you need to actually land successfully, right? And of course, you don't want to test a near-fuel depletion landing as you're aiming for your very expensive and important barge. So you don't set the barge out, right? And you just target a specific point on the water um, in terms of the very first Falcon Heavy launch, it, it is likely that some of the trajectories that they've been testing have fed in like they always do to the landing algorithms that the computers use to land all the boosters, be they return to launch site or uh, barge landings in the Atlantic or Pacific. Um, but it, it, it's unlikely they were testing a three and the exact three engine uh, hover slam landing that they're planning for the center core on Falcon Heavy. And, and that's because the Falcon Heavy's debut payload of the Tesla is a very, very light payload compared to what the Falcon Heavy can actually launch. So um, we are not in all likelihood, again, we, we, we don't have the actual um, final flight profile from SpaceX yet. We're still waiting for that. So bear in mind, we are recording this on Sunday. Um, uh, while you guys are likely listening to this on Tuesday, so things can certainly become clearer in the next few days, but, um, it, it doesn't appear for the center cores landing that they're doing anything majorly extreme with its landing. Um, like we've seen in, in past years where Elon has put out a warning saying it might not survive. Um, we've had no indication of that, which indicates to me that it's a relatively benign trajectory that the center core will fly. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that what was directly tested last week was 
directly linked to to the center core's landing other than I'm sure the da- if the data review showed, hey, we can update this to make it safer, that they have done that in, in the last week. Before we get to the payload, uh, one last thought on this. Um, if they do recover any of these uh, cores, will mm-hmm. they be used again? An excellent question. So the center core most likely will. The center core is brand new um, and, and has never flown before. So it would definitely fall into that category of being able to be reused at least once. The two side boosters have been flown before, and we have seen, um, I'm not entirely sure what the right word for this is, but we have seen a um, strategy by SpaceX that the Block 3 versions of the Falcon 9, which is what all three of these cores are, they're they're Block 3s, are only reused once. Um, So... I I would hesitate to say that the two side cores will fly again. It's possible based on some of the modifications they've already undergone for Falcon Heavy usage that SpaceX could look at them and decide, yes, we can use them again. Um, But based on the the flight and usage history, I think it's a better bet to say that the center core will definitely be reused at some point and, and the two side boosters might, but in all likelihood, given that they're block threes and this is their second flight, we might see them retired after this. And just so that our audience understands, can you just describe what you mean when you say block three? Oh, yes. So uh, the Falcon 9 vehicle has undergone um, several upgrades and enhancements over its uh, life from its initial introduction. So um, the the block three version of the Falcon Nine is is what we've seen launched the most. Um, it is it is the version also known as the full thrust variant of the Falcon uh, Nine that has landing legs and can support the um, the landing attempts that that we have seen be very successful. There is an intermediate upgrade from the block three, which is called the block four. That started flying in August of last year with the CRS-12 mission for NASA. And that is an intermediate upgrade on on their way to the final version of the Falcon 9, which is known as the Block 5. That's the one that will launch commercial crew missions for NASA. That is the one that has all of the safety and government upgrades that have been asked for by both NASA and the U.S. government for very sensitive payloads. Um, so the block fours and especially the block fives in particular, and we'll talk about the block fives, um, those are designed to be reflown 10 times with minimal maintenance and refurbishment between missions and can be flown. Um, I believe the figure is up to a hundred times is what their design is for undergoing refurbishment, uh, after those 10 initial flights are done. So when we talk about that rapid reuse capability that Elon Musk wants, where he says we can land a booster, haul it back to the launch pad, put it up, fuel it, and launch again within 24 hours, he's referring to the Block 5 final version of the Falcon 9 in that case. Okay. All right. So um, the Falcon Heavy is going to be carrying a payload for this launch. And, (laughs) And there's been a lot made about this payload. Uh, launch or, or payload, I should say. It's quite unusual. So, um, can you tell our audience what the payload is, why he selected it, and what will happen to it? Okay. So, the payload is Elon Musk's cherry red Tesla Roadster. Um, he, it, it was selected in large part because as this is the demonstration mission for Falcon Heavy, right? A lot of times customers are reluctant to put a very expensive satellite on a rocket that has never flown before. And even though the Falcon 9 has flown, um, uh, has flown several, several times by now, in fact, the Falcon Heavy launch will be the 49th overall flight of a Falcon family of vehicles. Um, it is flying for the first time in its heavy configuration, and there's a lot of hesitation in the launch market to put an active satellite on an unflown rocket. So Elon Musk offered his Tesla um, to be the payload, uh, in part because, you know, this is rocket flight. It is it is possible that something could go wrong and that it, the flight is not a success. Um, I think everyone 
um, anticipates a success despite what Musk cautioned that there's a chance that it that it will fail. Um, that's always a possibility. But he offered this payload because if there is a failure, nothing critical has been lost, right? It's just something personal to him. It's not something SpaceX was being paid for to launch. It's not something they would be liable for if the rocket did fail on its main flight. So that's a large part of the reason why uh, it was chosen. Now, on, on the flip side of that, Elon likes to demonstrate his sense of humor. So, you know, like the very first payload on the very first Falcon 9 was a wheel of cheese, um, we have something a little more robust, for the, but, but nonetheless kind of just as humorous for the first payload of the Falcon Heavy, which is his Tesla. Um, so that's sort of the why it was chosen. It, it's also a very lightweight payload because um, the, the overall mission success criteria for, for this first flight is to demonstrate that Falcon Heavy can fly successfully. That, that is first and foremost the, the goal. So putting a light payload on top of it um, gives that ability to test its overall um, usefulness and its overall operational capability. Uh, and the second reason, uh, the main reason that this mission is flying is to demonstrate the Falcon's overall ability to perform burns with its second stage after it reaches orbit that can take payloads beyond Earth orbit. The Falcon family of vehicles has never done this before. So specifically for this mission, what they want to test is they don't even want to test going to the moon. They're testing this stage, the second stage's ability to perform what's called a trans-Mars injection burn, which means the entire second stage and payload will depart Earth orbit completely and go to the orbital distance of Mars, which is roughly one and a half times the distance of Earth to the sun, which is about 141 million miles. Now, there's a caveat here because when this was first announced and people say it's going to Mars or it's going to Mars orbit, it's the second one that's actually true. It's going to Mars orbital distance. It's not actually going to Mars. We are nowhere close to the interplanetary window between Earth and Mars that opens in late April, early May of this year. So this is so a good way to think of this is, is it is going to Mars's orbital distance but it is orbiting the sun, just like Mars and Earth orbit the sun. It is not going to orbit Mars. So that is where it's going. And again, it's going there in order to test the Falcon 9's, uh, or the Falcon Heavy's second stage, which is the exact same second stage as the one used by the Falcon 9's, uh, ability to get payloads beyond Earth orbit. So that is overall why the payload was chosen and where it's going. So it's going to be orbital debris, if you will, uh, around the sun? Uh, a, an, an orbital satellite of the sun. I'm not sure I'd call it debris, um, personally. Oh, it depends who you talk to. <laughs> but it depends who you talk to, yes. Um, but, you know, it's going into a very stable orbit around the sun. So it's not one of those, like, we're just going to lose our ability to know where it is. It will be tracked. We'll, we'll know from the injection burns done by the second stage where it's going and what its orbital characteristics are. So uh, we, we will know where it is. So it's not something that we'll have to worry about in terms of future spacecraft going, oh, well, I hope it doesn't hit the cherry red Tesla. Um, you know, that that's out there as it goes on. We'll, we'll know exactly where it is in, in the solar system and in its and, orbit. And at some point in the future, people will have forgotten about it. And then it'll be rediscovered and people will go, why is there a car going <laughs> around the sun? And, uh, and, and, and those people will uh, understand what a lot of us in the news media core uh, explained to our families over Thanksgiving and Christmas of why SpaceX was sending a car to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Elon uh, posted on Instagram a picture of the Tesla, but in the Tesla was a Starman, as Elon is calling it, in the Red Roads Roadster, uh, and wearing a SpaceX suit. Do you think there's any data that they'll get back from possibly sensors on the SpaceX suit to see how it performs? 
I think there's a, a, a very good possibility that that's what they're doing here. Um, you know, this would give them a chance to test their spacesuits in in a near vacuum condition or actually in a, in a complete vacuum condition. Because um, one of the things spacesuits are designed, especially the launch and entry suits that our, that our astronauts wear, um, one of the things those suits are designed to do is to provide protection in the event of uh, cabin depress. Um, or, or a, a, um, you know, just a complete depressurization of the cabin. So this could really provide some good data on exactly what the suits can handle in terms of protecting astronauts from that potential scenario. And it's also, you know, because this is going to be completely exposed to the vacuum of space, you, you can see in the photo that Elon posted to Instagram that, you know, there, there is no roof to the car. Um, so this is also going to be exposed to very, um, a very rapidly swinging temperature conditions, um, when it's either in the sun or in shadow. So, um, I, I would bet that what they're doing with this is not only testing the pressurization aspect of the suit, but to see the types of thermal conditions it can handle and how it actually performs in the real world, um, uh, well, yeah, the real space environment, I guess, world is the wrong question since it's leaving our world. But I think it's it's definite that they're they're testing stuff and that we're going to get some good sensor data on how the suits actually perform before astronauts um, ride them into space. Hopefully Great. later this year. Great, and and hopefully they'll share a little bit of that uh, information with us. Okay, um, <clears throat> so from SpaceX's perspective. How will they uh, deem this launch a success? I mean, uh, and, and like you said previously, you know, nobody really wants to put a payload on on this rocket because it's the first time it's flown. And if we look at the history of maiden flights for new rocket variants, it's not a very good success rate. So what, for SpaceX, what is what is a success for this mission? Yeah, so so I, I think I'd also say that in terms of new rockets, the the first mission success rate, you know, has certainly gotten better in in recent years. Um, uh, you know, the for SpaceX, the 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 sort of immediate predecessor from which Falcon Heavy is is built, the Falcon Nine, had a very successful first flight back in two thousand ten. Um, so I think it, it's worth pointing that out. Um, the Atlas V, the Delta IVs also had very successful maiden voyages um, in 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 the last um, in the last couple decades. So, um, for SpaceX, you know, a, a success can be thought of in in several different ways. Right, um, the primary reason this mission is flying as it is is to learn. Right, you can you can test all you want on the ground. You can model all you want. Um, about how the rocket will behave in flight, how the systems work. But, you know, when push comes to shove, you actually have to launch it to see how the systems do and how the rocket performs. So any data we get from that could be considered a success. We got, we got data on what's going on, right? Now, the, the tricky part here is that because this is a demonstration mission, the, the line between a failure and, and a success is kind of blurred, right? Because even in the, um, yeah, even on, in the chance that, that the mission fails in terms of how the public would see it, meaning it does not reach orbit or it doesn't perform its trans-Mars injection burn or, or what have you, or something goes wrong during any stage of the flight, right? The public would look at that as, as a failure, but SpaceX might consider it a partial failure with a partial success because the rocket at that point would have lifted off. It would have executed at least some part of its flight profile and returned very valuable data to them. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think in terms of what's a success and what's not, we, we really have to remember that the primary reason this is flying is it's a demonstration mission meant to return data on the overall functionality of the vehicle. So if there is a failure, that is still very usable data that gets fed into the design of the vehicle before its next flight. And you know, it's it's worth pointing out too that while organizations are usually very hesitant about putting payloads onto rockets for their very first mission, uh, Falcon Heavy actually has um, uh, several other missions to its um, to, to its credit right, right now. Um, and that, that are coming up this year, we have, 
um, an ArabSat satellite that is scheduled to fly later this year. We have another demonstration mission for the U.S. Air Force that will be taking numerous satellites up um, into space. That one is currently slated for the summer months. Uh, and it's also the one that will launch the Planetary Society's light sail mission. Um, so, so overall, we have uh, the ArabSat, we have the U.S. Air Force test, we have Viasat 3, which is scheduled for launch in 2020 on a Falcon Heavy, and we still have that 2019 Crew Dragon circumlunar navigation mission paid for by private citizens that are out there. So while companies are hesitant to put payloads onto a rocket for its very first flight, companies are already buying flights of the Falcon Heavy um, later on down the road. So and I think that's important to note here as well. And just to recap here, um, for the rest of this year, you're saying that there's possibly two, maybe three Falcon Heavies launches? Uh, two, two. Two confirmed. Two confirmed, okay. Um, yes, the, the U.S. Air Force um, mission, uh, which will put a, which is basically to certify the Falcon Heavy for um, enhanced launch vehicle certification. Um, which the U.S. Air Force uses to uh, allow very sensitive and important satellites for national security to fly on various rockets. Um, it also has a host of secondary payloads, including LightSail, uh, the Prox-1 Nanosat, um, the Deep Space Atomic Clock. It has six Cosmic-2 satellites and an ISAT satellite as well. Um, and then we also have the ArabSat-6A mission. Those are the only two payload paying customer missions that are confirmed for 2018 the the crew dragon flight is likely 2019 at this point given the delay to commercial crew activities so uh, i have some questions from our listeners a little bit later but you just answered one of them for wendy clark which was she wanted to know when the light sail was going to go up and wendy it's on the third launch <laughs> uh p potentially the second um oh, potentially. I'm not potentially okay. the second yes there's um there, there's still some flexibility being worked out as to exactly which one will go next. The light sail mission is currently scheduled for June of this year. And um, there's some indication ArabSat might go before it, but there's also a lot of, um, uh, a lot of chatter that ArabSat will go after, um, after the Air Force and light sail mission. So that's still being worked out, but it could potentially be the second flight of Falcon Heavy. Now, from a marketplace perspective, uh, looking uh -huh. at the uh, uh, competitive launch vehicle uh, market, how important is Falcon Heavy to SpaceX? And is there anybody else that's coming out with a comparable launch vehicle in the next few years? Yes. So uh, in terms of the overall commercial um, element to the Falcon Heavy, um, it is much more powerful and much more capable. We went over all of those uh, specifications of what it can lift to various orbits and various interplanetary targets earlier in the podcast. The, the baseline price for what was known for Falcon Heavy before um, uh, uh, last year was that the baseline price for that rocket is about $90 million, um, which, you know, I don't know about you, Mark, but I don't have ninety million just sitting around in the bank account. But but, uh, but in terms of uh, rocket launches, that's pretty cheap. Yes, and and yes, and that's where our, that was my next point. It is it is incredibly cheaper than the next alternative in the United States, which is the Delta IV Heavy, which is extremely more expensive uh, than what Falcon Heavy is currently priced at. And and Falcon Heavy can also launch about a hundred thousand pounds more to low Earth orbit than the Delta IV Heavy can. Um, so in terms of pricing, you know, this follows SpaceX's overall goal that they have stated over and over and over again to reduce the cost of access to space. And, and it's also worth noting that that 90 million figure, um, while SpaceX is not, does not normally talk a lot about, um, how that pricing works or exactly what customers are charged, um, it's worth noting that that $90 million is assumed to be three brand new core stages. So if you start to factor in some of the discounts that have been promised by reusing boosters, that $90 million price tag as the baseline could drop below that. Um, and, and for the amount of payload that's being launched, that is 
absolutely incredible and an incredible price for the for the industry. Um, in terms of uh, anyone else who is working on rockets that are similar, um, I, I would say that the most similar rocket in terms of its overall design for reusability that's under development is Blue Origin's New Glen rocket. And they are building a massive facility on Merritt Island. I drive by it every time I go to pick up my badge for SpaceX missions, and it is mind-bogglingly huge. Um, the New Glenn rocket is currently slated to take its first flight in 2020 from Cape Canaveral. And like the Falcon 9, its first stage will separate and land on a drone ship out in the Atlantic Ocean and be brought back to port for refurbishment and reflight. Um, so uh, that, that and that is a very heavy lift rocket as well. We're, they're still working out the exact specifications of it as it goes through its various design um, uh, waypoints way toward its eventual construction. Uh, but it, it would be the most comparable in terms of the overall reusability design and, and what's planned for its ability to launch. Uh, United Launch Alliance is also developing its Vulcan rocket, um, but they are taking a different approach. So eventually, sometime around the 2025 time period, uh, after the Vulcan has been flying for a few years, uh, United Launch Alliance says they will introduce what's called the smart reuse capability, which means that instead of the whole first stage of the Vulcan coming back to land either on a barge or on land, after the first stage separates, the engine section of the Vulcan will detach from the first stage and parachute uh, down toward the Atlantic or the Pacific and be caught by a helicopter and brought back uh, and refurbished and the engine compartment itself reused while the first stage tanks will be a new build uh, every single time. Um, so that's sort of a, a very brief overview of where the, the two main uh, other entrants and current participants in the launch market stand with their reusability design efforts. So by the sounds of it, if SpaceX is successful in getting the Falcon Heavy into service soon, mm -hmm. they will have a substantial lead on other companies for this uh, heavy uh, lift capability for several years. Uh, they'll, they'll, I, I would phrase it that they will have a, a significant lead on Blue Origin and the new Glenn rocket. Um, United Launch Alliance, which is building the Vulcan rocket, currently operates the uh, veteran Atlas V rocket and the Delta IV rockets. Um, with, and the Delta IV Heavy has missions. Um, I, I believe the Delta IV Heavy has missions planned out well into the uh, 2020s. Um, uh, in, in fact, if, if my memory is serving me correctly, I'm, I'm trying to look this up um, uh, right now, but I believe that the Delta IV Heavy has launches planned out through 2024. Um, and, and, you know, with, with the long lead times needed in some of these um, needed in some of these missions, right, you you end up planning missions years and years and years in advance from when they'll actually launch. So. I, I wouldn't say that SpaceX has has the lead on United Launch Alliance because of the Delta IV Heavy, but they definitely do over uh, Blue Origin and New Glenn. But again, once New Glenn is up and running, they will be a competitor in that market for future launch contracts, just as SpaceX, once they got the Falcon 9 up and running, became competitors for the Atlas and Delta IV missions launched by United Launch Alliance. And I suppose the, the good news in all of this is that um, launch costs will be going down. And uh, yes. that's an important factor going forward, especially for uh, Elong's uh, long-term goal of um, settling Mars. Okay, um, a couple of other SpaceX questions, and then we'll uh, have a few from the audience. Um, mm -hmm. And the first one is, is my curiosity. SpaceX has been developing a new engine, the Raptor. It's their next generation methane-fueled engine. How mm -hmm. soon do you think uh, before we see it on a flight? And will it be tested on a Falcon 9 uh, second stage first? So the, uh, so the Raptor engines are currently undergoing development testing out in uh, McGregor, Texas. They have test-fired, according to Elon Musk, several of them. 
at, at this point. I believe the figure when he spoke back in uh, September at that conference in Australia was that they had managed to fire the Raptor engine about once every one and a half weeks. Um, so that on, so that testing is, is ongoing. So, and that rocket engine will primarily, uh, very much primarily be used for the BFR rocket. Um, the, the big colonial colonization ship that, um, SpaceX has planned for its Mars colonization efforts for moon bases for, uh, that very impressive round the world in 45 minutes, uh, trip for the cost of, what it takes to get on a commercial airliner right now was, uh, I believe, was the promise uh, <laughs> made. Um, so that is that. So that is the current plan. Um, uh, to to my knowledge, I do not believe they have. Um, uh, I do not believe there is a plan to test um, the Raptor on a Falcon Nine second stage. I, I haven't. Um, I haven't heard of a plan. At, at least a, a plan that's really in the works to to test that. But um, I, I admit I have mainly been following um, the, the current launch vehicle market and not necessarily the, um, the, the design for uh, or potential redesigns for the Falcons or anything like that. Okay. Yeah, because the, the reason why I bring it up is because um, from what I understand, the engine uh, would be very useful in trying to launch payloads uh, beyond uh, Mars, so if we wanted to, for you know NASA space exploration yes. missions to Jupiter or wherever, uh, um, and, and actually a, a, a quick search of that, if I if I may go back, um, yep. so I, I think where that came from is in January of 2016, um, the U.S. Air Force apparently awarded a 33 and a half million dollar development contract to SpaceX to look into a potential prototype version of the Raptor engine for use on the second stage of the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets. Um, so um, so I, I believe that's where that development contract uh, came in. Um, but a, just a quick look doesn't uh, reveal any information beyond that that contract was awarded or where they are in any of that um, or where they are in that process to potentially test it or use it on a second stage of a Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy. So my last question before we get to some of the reader questions is has to do with launch cadence. Uh, and mm -hmm. in particular, um, you know, they basically have three launch pads that they're now uh, using, the two in Florida and the one in California. Uh, SpaceX seems to have been moving a little bit slower in getting its Brownsville, Texas face, spaceport online. When do you think we're going to see the first launch from there? Uh, so first launch, um, I, I don't even believe SpaceX has even notionally given a date for that recently. Um, I know... Uh, Gwen Shotwell, um, president and COO of SpaceX, said very recently that the Brownsville site would likely be ready for testing um, uh, of rockets on the pads or, or just general ground acceptance testing by the end of this year or beginning of next year. Um, and, and that was a statement made very, very recently. Um, but yes, Brownsville has been um, both an interesting challenge based on the topography and the actual ground and what they realized they needed to do um, to make the ground capable of supporting Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, and even potentially BFR launches from that site. Um, it's not just as simple as erecting a launch pad. You have to make sure that you're not going to essentially liquefy the ground when the engine's light um, and sink yourself into the ground. Um, that's a very humorous analogy, but you know it, it's the the ground topography is something you have to very carefully look at, and um, that would that has been part of the delay for the Brownsville site. But uh, in more recent years, um, one of the things that has delayed the activation and the build of that site was the very urgent need to rebuild Slick 40 after the Amos 6 conflagration during static fire. Um, and also when, when that immediately happened, the need to get 39A up and running so that their East Coast manifest could begin. And then, of course, all of last year was then dedicated to 
the rebuild of Slick 40 and getting 39A ready for the Falcon Heavy. So um, now that those two pads are back up and running, a lot of the workforce um, that is in charge of building the pads can now shift over to Brownsville to uh, really go all out on getting that site up and running. All right. So um, we got some questions by email and we got some by Twitter and some of them have already been answered. So we'll just go through a couple of them. Um, John is catching a last minute flight to watch the launch. Uh, He wants to know where's the best place to actually watch it at this point. I know that all the official places have probably been sold out. So uh, where would be uh, an unofficial uh, good spot to, to go park your car and watch the launch? Although I, based on my time down there, I, I don't think there'd be any bad spots. But <laughs> uh, I, I mean, yeah, if, you, if you're in Titusville, you're going to see something, you're going to hear something, and you're going to feel something as, you know, a five million pounds of thrust takes to the sky. Um uh, well, I, I hope that this information is is still helpful to anyone listening to it Tuesday morning on, on the first launch attempt day, um, which is, from what I understand, when we're going to publish this. Um, so in general, um, what I would say is there, there are several locations. Yes, the, the tickets sold by the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex for the Feel the Heat, the one at the Saturn V Center, sold out very, very quickly. Um, and of course, you're not allowed on base. So uh, there are a few options, um, and it depends on what you want to prioritize being closest to. So my recommendation is that if you want to be close to the actual launch and to feel as much as possible the full force and power of Falcon Heavy as it lifts off, go to Playa Linda Beach. Playa Linda Beach has stated that they will be open for the Falcon Heavy launch, And what's great about this launch window is that it falls entirely within the normal hours of operation for Playa Linda Beach. So you don't have to be worried about being kicked out a few minutes before launch if they delay to further into the window. Um, Playa Linda Beach will put you roughly, depending on where you go there, will put you roughly three and a half miles north of pad 39A. Um, That's about half a mile farther away than where we will be as press at the press site, which is exactly three miles from the pad. So that gets you extremely close. Um, a quick, um, so, um, and Playland Beach is only $10 to get into. So uh, it, it's very cheap. Now, Playland Beach is also first come, first served. So what I would recommend is if you are planning to go to Playa Linda Beach, and again, I hope this is still useful on Tuesday morning, uh, you need to go there right when it opens. You need to be ready to get in because while they don't officially close the park, once they reach capacity at their parking lots, they stop letting vehicles in um, and they close the inbound gates. So uh, if you want to go to Playa Linda Beach, you have to get there early. Do not think that you can get there at noon for a 1.30 launch and get in. That place is going to have a lot of people in it. And if you're going to play Linda Beach, bring food and bring water um, because there are no concession stands there. So you need to, you need to plan ahead. Uh, if you want to prioritize being closer to the uh, landings of the two side core boosters, then I would recommend you go down to Port Canaveral. There are a few options here. One is on the 401 uh, causeway, which is the road that leads you directly to the south entrance gate to the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. There are places along there there to pull off safely to the side of the road along the river. Um, You will have an unobstructed view of pad 39A, and you will also have an unobstructed view of the two side cores coming back to land. Now, you're pretty far away. You're about uh, 11 to 12 miles south of pad A, but you are closer to the two landing pads and you will be able to see the two boosters um, land. You won't be able to see them in great detail, but you will be able to track them even in daylight with with the naked eye as they come back. Uh, Your other option um, down near the port is Jetty Park or to go to the beach. 
at Cocoa Beach. Um, Jetty Park costs some money to get into. I'm not entirely sure. It's, it's either 10 or $15, very similar to Playa Linda. Um, you will be able to be much closer to the landing pads as the boosters come in. But um, just be warned that if you go there, that there is a berm on the other side of the port. So while you will get to see a lot more detail of the boosters as they come toward their landing pads, they will disappear from view uh, before they actually land. But that would be my recommendation um, in terms of where to get if you want to be closer to one of the two events. Aside from that, if you just want to be there and experience it with other people, um, anywhere along the river in Titusville is a great uh, location to pull off and watch with like-minded enthusiasts who are going to be very, very happy uh, when, when this rocket leaves the pad. Okay, that was very uh, good information. And you're right, some of it might be too late by the time the podcast goes to air on Tuesday at 8 a.m. So, um, but, but hey, there are more Falcon Heavy missions planned later this year. And, uh, and all true. of those locations I just mentioned are great locations to watch Falcon 9s go from 39A or 40, and, and also to watch the other launches that take place from the Cape on Atlases or, or Deltas as well. So in general, it's just good viewing information to have for, for any rocket that goes up. All right. So Mark from Tampa wants to know about the uh, ignition sequence. He wants to know yes. in particular, do the side cores ignite before the center core, vice versa, or all at once? Okay. So the answer is they do not all light at once. Um, there, is a, there is a staggered start sequence to the engine ignition process. Uh, because if they lit all 27 engines at the same exact moment, you would wind up in a situation where the acoustical energy could create a rotational torque and basically rip the bottom of the rocket apart. Um, that sounds very dramatic, um, but it is mitigated quite well by doing a staggered start sequence of the engine ignition process. And when I say staggered start, to the naked eye, it's going to look like they're all lighting at the exact same moment. Um, the space shuttle, for the exact same reason, uh, when it's three liquid-fueled engines lit, they were actually staggered in their start by 120 milliseconds from each other. But unless you were watching slow-motion video, it looked near simultaneous to the ignition. Uh, and staggering them even you know, milliseconds apart um, really helps mitigate that that rotational torque that that could be a real problem. Now, with Falcon Heavy, as it's different from shuttle in the engine ignition process, is that you're not lighting each individual engine and then lighting another and then lighting another. Certain engines can still certainly light at the exact same moment. You just have to overall stagger the ignition of the 27 so that it, the vehicle doesn't rip itself apart. Um, SpaceX has not provided a very clear answer to that. They, they consider that proprietary information about the exact sequence. Um, what I can tell you from the static fire and the public video that SpaceX made available is that um, someone on our site did an acoustic breakdown of the ignition process, and it appeared to indicate that the center core's engines lit first, followed by the two side core boosters engines lighting after the center core. So that's that's what it appeared from the uh, sound analysis that was done uh, from the in video made publicly available by SpaceX. Okay. Um, we have a question here from Espacio News from Twitter, uh, who wants to know, uh, for whatever reason, if they scrub on uh, Tuesday, what are the uh, backup uh, launch window dates? Yes. So uh, if we do have a scrub for some reason, be it weather or they see something uh, that they want to change and just make sure of, um, if that happens on Tuesday, we have a backup opportunity already scheduled on the Eastern Range for Wednesday, February 7th, the very next day at the exact same time window, 1.30 to 4.30 Eastern, uh, 18.30 to 21.30 UTC. Uh, for those of you who want to do a quick conversion there for whatever time zone you might be in. Um, beyond that, um, what I can say is that Usually the way this works, if, if we move beyond the primary day and the backup day, is that SpaceX would coordinate with the range. And as long as there is already 
as long as the days are open beyond that, and there is not another customer needing to do a critical test that requires range assets or the U.S. military has already booked the range for something, um, the range is usually very flexible if we need to go beyond the first two days of the launch attempt. So if we end up in a situation where we scrub on Tuesday and let's say it takes us two days to turn around for our next attempt and we find ourselves on Thursday the 8th, uh, the range is usually very accommodating for that. Now, the caveat that I will put out there is, as all of us, I'm sure, remember from just three weeks ago, the U.S. federal government shut down over a weekend and scuttled an attempt by SpaceX to do the static fire of the Falcon Heavy because during a government shutdown, the range does not have the needed number of personnel to support static fire and launch operations for any customer, for any rocket customer off the range. The three-week spending package that the federal government here in the U.S. agreed to expires at the stroke of midnight on the 8th of February. So that's the 7th into the 8th. So when the 7th goes to the 8th, that's when funding for the U.S. government currently expires. Uh, there is some debate in U.S. politics as to whether or not the main sticking points that led to the first shutdown three weeks ago can actually be resolved in time for a longer spending bill. It is possible that we are headed for another government shutdown in the U.S., and that would mean that the 45th Weather Squadron at Cape Canaveral, no, the four, I'm sorry, the 45th Space Wing, not the Weather Squadron, the 45th Space Wing, uh, and the Air Force at Cape Canaveral would therefore be unable to support launch operations if the government shuts down on the morning of February 8th. Okay. That's what uh, I will throw out there. We have no idea whether or not there's going to be a shutdown or not. And we're only four days away from that. <laughs> so um, we're not going to worry about a shutdown at this point. We're going right. to go. Um... Oh, and, and actually, I, I, I want to answer, uh, I sort of give some clarity, because I know there's been a lot of talk about this is a brand new rocket. It's very complex. And a lot of people out there are very, very certain that we are going to have a scrub on our first attempt. The only thing I will put out there as a reminder is that while scrubs are always a possibility, for historical context, the Saturn V launched on its very first attempt with 1960s technology, and the Falcon 9 rocket actually launched on its very first attempt back in 2010. So while a scrub is certainly possible, it is equally possible that Falcon Heavy will go right off the pad on its very first attempt Tuesday, and we won't have to worry about a government shutdown. Okay. Uh, I want to thank Chris for being a guest on the Space Cube podcast. I, I hope you'll be a guest again. Um, if you'd like, um, how can people uh, reach you if they have any questions for you uh, on Twitter and uh, email? Uh, yes. So uh, Twitter is the best way to reach me. My handle is at Chris G underscore NSF. Um, and I'm sure that'll be included in some of the links um, posted to, to Space Cube. But that is the best way to reach me. Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. We're on Twitter with the username at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and podcasts on our page at The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. <laughs>